Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. It is a wonderful day, as it always is in the Lord. And we're thankful that uh, you're either here this morning. There's a uh, slogan on one of the radio channels that says, It's time to return to church. Absolutely. It's time to return to church. So we're thankful for those who are here, but those who are also uh, unable to be here, uh, we're thankful that you're online with us. Now, this morning as we begin, we always take a few seconds for spiritual preparation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's take a few seconds, as I said, closing our eyes, bowing our heads. It's our opportunity for privacy between you and God the Father, acknowledging any sins that may have occurred between uh, now and the last time that you spoke with him about this, and therefore, it's your turn. It's your opportunity for spiritual preparation for our worship service. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this relationship with you. The relationship comes to us through our Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. We know that you loved us and you sent him to earth in his hypostatic union, in his human body, not losing his deity, but being full human. And in his ministry, at the end, he goes to the cross and provides redemption for all mankind, simply for those individuals who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we're thankful, Father, not only for our redemption, our, our salvation, but we're also, also thankful for the Word of God, which is uh, your uh, provision for us and how to live the Christian life now that we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for God the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives this morning as we come together and worship, and we ask for your blessing upon the, the worship service. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our opportunity to express our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for God the Father, Holy Spirit, the Godhead, and the many ministries in which they are involved. We're thankful that God has given us this opportunity to express our love through giving. We're told that each one of you should give, just as you determine in your own heart, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for the Lord loves a gracious giver. Dearly Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity. It's not the amount that we give. It's the willingness, the graciousness in our souls that we have learned from you. And we ask, Father, that uh, 
you will bless the gifts that we give you, which you have previously give up, given us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I enjoy the Psalms. And so I always like to start with a call to worship. And some might find this unusual, but uh, it begins very often with a worship psalm. Uh, Of course, not all the psalms are worship psalms, but many of them are written by David. Psalm 11. Psalm 11 is a psalm that's written by David. And he is speaking of the Lord, but also the attacks on him by the wicked. Now, uh, sometimes as we read these, we wonder why the particular psalm is recorded, has been preserved by God the Holy Spirit. It's because we can apply it. We can apply these psalms. David lived a life that many of us would think was extraordinary from the standpoint that he was anointed very early in life. Uh, And then the Lord slowly uh, taught him and then made him king. And he lived just a wonderful life. But not so. David uh, experienced many pressures, much adversity. And I think that uh, even though he knew he was God's chosen, anointed one to be king, that there were days when he was discouraged, uh, that he was depressed, that he was worried. And it was through his music, his poetry, that he expresses these. And I often think that it was in a way, therapy, we can use that term, it was therapy for him because he not only played um, his harp, but he would write, he would record his thoughts. And at the end of of a particular psalm, uh, the poetry, he has, we might say, recovered. He starts maybe... Uh, understanding that God is his God, his protector. But then he interjects the challenges that he's facing. And by the time he's finished writing and maybe even singing this psalm several times, he is encouraged. And that, therefore, that's what I hope it is for you. Psalm 11 Again, a psalm of David. And he begins by saying, In the Lord I put my trust. And that's where we need to place our trust. Then he interjects the attack of the wicked on his life. We don't know precisely what this attack was. We don't know where it occurred. But he will use, I think, uh, figures, figures of speech to indicate that it could be a very serious attack, particularly when we're talking about dangerous, uh, fatal weapons. So he begins by saying, in the Lord I put my trust. 
And then he's describing the wicked. How can you say to my soul, flee, run as a bird to your, to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrows on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. In the if the foundations are destroyed, how can the right, what can the righteous do? And the word for foundations here, of course, can be translated foundations. It can be translated pillars, but it has the sense of, uh, the purpose, uh, the, the reason for living. So if our reasons for living because of the wicked, because of their attacks, if they destroy us, what can we do? Well, the answer is found in the next verse. The Lord is in his holy temple. We often say that God is on his throne. It doesn't make any difference what the wicked are doing. It doesn't make any difference what our uh, adversity is. The challenge that we have that day because God is in his temple. That was David's uh, description at the time. He could have said, uh, here his holy temple means that he is in, in heaven because the temple had not yet been uh, built. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. God sees us. He knows what's happening he has omniscience. His eyelids test the sons of God. In other words, he's observing us and he's observing our response to uh, adversity. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the ones who love violence, his soul hates, rejects, and will discipline. Upon the wicked... He will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Their cup is their life, what they are going to receive from God. And then he closes verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the uprighteous. He doesn't just behold us, but... He is uh, in our presence. His presence is with us and he provides for us. And I think that we very often forget this uh, during uh, our busy days, our difficult days. Something happens and um, far from our thoughts is God and his love for us, his care for us and his protection. God's, uh, God will not allow anything to happen to us that is not beyond our capability and certainly his capability to provide for us. All right. <clears throat> Let's turn to our passage in 1 Corinthians 4. We've moved from chapter 3, chapter 1, 2, 3, to chapter 4. Now, I think it's important for us 
maybe not critical, but at least important for us to realize that as we move in our English texts from chapter 3, verse 23, to chapter 4, verse 1, that that is an artificial break. The actual letter that was written had no chapter breaks, had no versification, as we call this, no breaks and numbering of verses. It was simply uh, the scribe that Paul was either dictating his message or it could have been uh, uh, one of his ministers. Could be Apollos, could be Timothy, could be Silas, could be Ephroditus. So uh, when we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we have to understand while there may seem to be a break here, and I think there is a shift in what he's saying, the context really continues. The context ends or continues, we find the context, maybe in verse 23 of chapter 3. The last verse we had there, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now, Paul is going to take that concept that we are Christ's and he begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. Let's read 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. And we'll see that Paul describes himself as a steward of the mysteries of God. And I think some people, as they read the Word of God, think that there's a lot of things that are mysteries here. And it's not always easy to understand specifically what is being said. But I think if we understand the context, we can at least move closer to what Paul is saying. Let a man so consider us. And this is Paul speaking about us, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. You'll notice that he used those names in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So he really is still addressing a maybe a, a, a broader topic, but he's speaking about those who are ministering to the Corinthians. Therefore, excuse me, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. 3. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court, by a human court. And some of you may have an asterisk there, and I'm glad you do if you do, or you may have a different translation. Uh, the human court there, the word for court is more often translated day. And that's important, I think, because I think Paul is now comparing two different days. One is a divine day and one is a human day. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. 
for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Notice he he uh, intertwines this uh, idea of the rapture, the Lord's returning, and also at that time the judgment seat of Christ. So, you know, we have weak breaks here, but Paul is still addressing this uh, evaluation of believers and also the judge uh, judging or the criticism of many of the ministers there at Corinth. So verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And I think just reading this, it can be maybe difficult to understand what Paul is saying here. But he ends with this praise. Then let each one praise. Then each one's praise will come from God. And so somehow this paragraph that's been separated is going to end with praise from God. All right. Verse 1. And as we begin verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I'd like to say that uh, Paul is extending his thought that believers, particularly ministers, have a responsibility to serve the Lord. But he's also saying to the Corinthian believers that they should regard them not as, what's the word, exceptional individuals so that they are uh, either championing Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Instead, he says, you know, we're servants. We're not someone that uh, should be honored as a great orator or someone who has a philosophy that is extraordinary. No, we are servants and we are stewards. So first of all, Paul describes his relationship to God in two ways. And those two ways are as servants and stewards. And you'll notice he says us, the first uh, per, uh, first person plural. So he's referring, I believe, at this point to those who are not only, he's referring not only to himself, but also to his ministry team. Now, before we go to point one here, Notice one more time that in verse 1, we have this grammatical form that says, let a man so consider us. And this really is a command. It's not just 
I uh, in, invite you to make this consideration. But this is, again, and Paul teaches this way, particularly in 1 Corinthians. Why? Because the Corinthians need to be told, not necessarily encouraged, but told. Because he spent, and I'll repeat myself here later, he spent 18 months with them, teaching them the mysteries of God. And this is not simply uh, the incalation of this dispensation, but there were many things for him to teach them. And for some reason, they have slipped from those teachings. So what we have here, first of all, is an an imperative. And we can translate that each one of you must regard or we must realize or understand. So what Paul was about to say is a command. It's not a recommendation. In fact, he's mandating what we'll see, godly uh, humility. So point one here. Paul's message to the Corinthians regarding himself and his missionary team is twofold. First, they are servants. And secondly, they are stewards. Some commentators see these two as complementary and, as a matter of fact, see them as reinforcing one another. And therefore, they may just translate this as one word, either as servants or as stewards. Um, however, uh, while that may be possible, I don't think that's so. And I think we should see them as two different conditions. First of all, servants. Paul says that they are first First of all, servants. Why? Because they have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross, which redeems them from the slave market of sin. We use that term, slave market of sin, periodically, but it is a biblical phrase. It's something that we should understand. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 6, 20. It's just a few Pages from here, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. Servants, we are servants. We have been purchased from the slave market of sin. How? By the Lord's sacrificial work on the cross. 1 Corinthians 6, 20 says, For you were bought at a price. In other words, there was a... a, There was a value. There was a price that needed to be paid. And it was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What does that tell us? What does that tell us? That tells us that we belong to God. And servants in the ancient world, when Paul was writing, they truly were owned by their master, body and soul. And that's his expression here. We belong to God. Very often there's someone, or maybe many, who believe that, yes, 
I have eternal life, but now I'm more or less free to do whatever I'd like to do. Well, it's your decision, but you are a servant. You are a servant to God. The word originally referred to slaves who were known as under rowers on Roman galleys. Uh, I remember when uh, Dr. Edgar, I like to refer to Dr. Edgar periodically, uh, my days in classes with him, uh, I cherish. Uh, he believes his research brought him to the conclusion that this phrase, this word, uh, servant, is used specifically for a slave who was an under rower on a Roman galley. galley. Uh, You may remember seeing the Roman galleys as they were uh, under sail, but they were also uh, under power of rowers. And sometimes there were more than one row of uh, of rowers and this is the lower row that's what this how this was used uh, they were the first ones to go if the ship went down and of course they were not free to just depart they were chained at their position and so uh, this is another way when we talk about servants that we belong to Christ. In 3.23, I'm going back to chapter 4, we are told that you are Christ's, and Christ's is God. So we belong to God. And I think that eludes us uh, often during the day. Secondly, stewards. There's a distinction between these two words, and I don't think they are simply reinforcing one another. Secondly, stewards. What is a steward? A steward was a manager. And as a manager, in other words, um, we could say, if we wanted an example of this, um, Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt. But soon he was a steward. He was placed in position of responsibility so that the master didn't worry about what was happening in his house. And some managers had certain responsibilities and other stewards had immense responsibilities. They were trusted. And so here we have stewards. Stewards, a manager who has given responsibilities in certain situations or positions. In this regard, Paul or Apollos are special. They are worthy of honor. They are servants and stewards. In fact, they have been given certain spiritual gifts. And that would uh, equate itself to Joseph, who was given certain responsibilities. Uh, to take care of the house, to take care of everything, as a matter of fact. Well, uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, other uh, apostles were given certain spiritual gifts. Apollos was not an Apollos, was not uh, not an apostle, 
but he had certain communication gifts that allowed him to teach, to teach spiritual things. So they were given uh, spiritual gifts at the instant of faith in Christ, uh, in Jesus, um, which means that they are responsible to serve in that spiritual gifts capacity. And we have that same responsibility. Fourth, we must see ourselves as Paul sees himself, as servants and as stewards. We do not seek honor. This is one of the reasons that uh, Paul, I think, writes this. He's not seeking honor. He's not a philosopher. He's not a wise man. He's not a scribe that are seeking honor, seeking popularity. He says, we are servants. We are stewards. We don't seek honor. We don't seek popularity. But we simply serve. And that's what Joseph would, how he would see himself. He's simply serving. Five, the mysteries. The mysteries, or we could call this the secrets of God. God's revelation delivered by the apostles is probably a, a short definition. But Paul uses this word at, in at least two different ways. First, it's used in a general way, meaning the revelation of God, which only comes through God's word, or in the case of the New Testament, uh, in the case of the New New Testament canon or books through the apostles, prophets, and other spiritual gifts. So this phrase, as we encounter it in the New Testament, can first of all simply be the revelation of God as it's presented to us, as it's delivered to us by the apostles, the prophets, and others who had communication type gifts. Secondly, it can also refer to the way that God is administering mankind, specifically the new administration of the of the dispensation of grace, which we call the church age. Now, in this context, if we go back and we see how Paul is speaking to these believers, I think in the context, this is the general view. In other words, they're teachers. They are ministers. Uh, they are apostles or they're prophets. And so in the context, it appears that Paul is using it in a general way. God's revelation. But either uh, use is fine, either definition. Because Paul was certainly the minister of the new revelation of God's new dispensation of the church age, uh, a passage where uh, the mystery of God is used this way is in Ephesians. Let's turn to Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3, 2. So you'll see the difference here. I think this is uh, apparent to us. Verse 1 in Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you uh, Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. 
Here he's speaking to the Gentiles and he's saying to them as Gentiles, there is a new administration here. There's a new dispensation. And the uh, the word of God, the uh, focus of God is no longer on Israel, but it's on mankind in general. And you Gentiles need to know this. There's a new dispensation. And so this is the way we see the narrower understanding of mysteries. Back to 1 Corinthians. I think it's important for us to take the time to look at that periodically, just to understand um, how the author is using certain words or phrases and is he using it that way consistently or is he using it uh, in different ways in different contexts? And I think that's what Paul is doing here. Secondly, or excuse me, verse 2, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Paul says that as stewards, believers must be faithful to the stewardship that God has given them. In other words, God's plan for them. So moreover, it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. First, Paul's ministry, the traveling philosophers, the debaters, the sophists, the wise men, had criticized Paul's ministry. He was criticized of teaching his own material or doctrine. Uh, this is not uh, always uh, easy to find in the texts, uh, particularly in 1 Corinthians. But Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, is addressing problems that the Corinthians were having. He doesn't always explain what those problems are, but he very often gives the solution. And it's up to us to determine what were the problems. And here he's saying, he's not saying he was being critical, but he's saying it's important for me as a steward to be faithful. Why would he say that? Because he is going to say that he needs to continue to teach even though he is being criticized. Secondly, without refuting it specifically, Paul says that anyone who was a steward to a master had to be loyal to that master. Paul was not his own master. And there is there is the difference between the philosophers, the debaters, the traveling sophists. They were their own masters. And they were teaching. They were ministering for their own uh, approval. The approval of those who heard them. Paul says that's not who he was. Paul says that anyone who was a steward to a master had to be loyal to that master. Paul was not his own master. God was his master. Third, Paul's inference to his faithfulness to the message that he had received from, or Paul's inference is to his faithfulness to the message that he had received from God. So when he says that he had to be found faithful, he needs to be faithful to that message. Faithful to the message that God has given him. 
that he possesses. Paul was not teaching his own philosophy or trying to gain a following by sensationalism in his message. That was not what Paul was doing. Now, there were a lot of people who found it difficult to believe what he was teaching. But it was the message of God. And he wasn't trying to be sensationalist, a sensationalist. Fourth, a pastor or a teacher must be careful to present the truth of the word of God, not his own ideas. Every now and then you'll encounter people who have a thought and they want to present it. And then they'll find a passage somewhere that seems to support what they plan to teach. Well, that's not the proper way to teach the Word of God. You go to the Word of God first, determine what the author is saying, and then, after you have translated it, interpreted it, now you apply it. So the question is, what's, what's this, the author saying? Why is he saying what he says? And what does it mean to me is how we approach this. So a teacher, a pastor, must be careful that his message comes from the word of God, not from his own intellect or his own experiences. Simply stick to the message found in the word of God. Point five, it's easy to get derailed by social gospel and current topics. The foundational truth that comes from the Word of God is the only real stabilizing message for the vicissitudes of life. And so the truth of the Word of God is the only stabilizing message for our daily lives, for what we encounter every day. And there are some marvelous speakers. There are some marvelous uh, individuals who are either ministers or evangelists, and they have great messages. But often, if you're listening to them carefully, it doesn't appear that it's coming from the Word of God. It's coming from maybe their own gem uh, that they believe uh, you need to hear. And we need to be cautious, just as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and as ministers of the Word of God, that we are teaching the Word of God, what God wants us to learn. Verse 3. In verse 3, To this point, Paul has been speaking about ministers in general, but now he makes it more personal. Paul does this very often. He uses himself as an example. First of all, well, let me read the verse. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. And I insert there man's day, and we'll see why I'm doing that by a human court or by man's day. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Interesting. Paul was under attack in Corinth by secular critics and also in the church. There were those who didn't uh, champion Paul. He wouldn't have wanted them to, but at least his message. Some thought it was Peter. Some thought it would be Apollos. And some others. So... uh, Paul was being attacked in Corinth by secular critics and even being attacked in the church. These attacks were encountered wherever Paul traveled, and Corinth certainly was no exception. 
Satan, maintain, uh, Satan maintains a constant attack against the truth. Wherever the truth is taught, there will be opposition. Remember that Satan is the father of lies and he is the opposition of truth. Uh, a passage that you should remember is John. John 8. What do we know about Satan? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us. He happens to be speaking to Pharisaic Jews at the time, but he he compares them or he tells them that their actions are uh, satanic. In John 8:44, he says, "You are of your father's you are you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Why? For he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan, turning back to 1 Corinthians 4, Satan is the father of what we would probably call uh, the untruth, what is not true. Paul says that these attacks are really an insignificant occurrence. So Paul says it was rather a small thing that these attacks occurred. This does not mean that the attacks were of no significance, but that he encountered them all the time. He knew he was teaching God's truth, and therefore the attacks, small or great, were of minor consequence to him. He stuck with the Bible. He stuck with the truth. Three, Paul had been criticized in the marketplace. He had been criticized in the marketplace, in the synagogue, in churches, and even in courts. It was expected. Paul knew the opposition was there. World opposition is normal. Now, the phrase human court is literally man's day. And I think that Paul uses this phrase, and you'll know, notice that uh, the English translation in the new, uh, new King James Version has it as a human court. And uh, there's another way that it can be translated, um, and that is, uh, we'll see in verse 5, there seems to be a relationship as well. But I think that Paul uses this phrase, uh, man's day, because it is an implied contrast with the day of the Lord, which we saw in 3.13. Back in 3.13, we see the word day. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. What is that day? This is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that is an important judgment day. Paul says criticism, charges in man's day is insignificant. It's not important. And so I think we have this uh, comparison, we might say. Uh, 
Paul contrasts the day of the Lord with man's day. Paul will appear in many human courts, man's day to evaluate him. Paul will say that his time has not yet come. God will judge him, not man. Fourth, Paul also says that he was not compelled, uh, he was not competent. Paul also says that he was not competent to judge himself. And I think by this, Paul means that he's doing his best to serve as God's minister, his steward. And he's not going to spend a lot of time in self-reflection or self-judgment. And I make the comment here that uh, this is not smugness or pride on Paul's on Paul's behalf, but he explains his meaning in verse four. So in verse four, Paul is going to continue his description here. In verse four, Paul says that he leaves his evaluation to God. So he says in verse three, in fact, I do not even judge myself. But in verse 4, he says, For I know nothing against my God, for myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. In other words, what he's saying, uh, I'm not saying this because I think I'm always right. I'm simply saying this, that I'm doing what I believe is correct. So first of all, Paul is not saying that he's always correct or that he's Performance cannot be improved. He's not claiming perfection. That's not what he's saying here. That's not his point. Secondly, he does say that at this point in his ministry, he doesn't know that he's doing anything wrong. In other words, what we're going to see when we arrive at verse 16 in chapter 4, he says, imitate me. And for Paul to say that, he can't believe that his life is one of flaws and deficiencies. So he adds that he is, he is unaware of any wrong on his part. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, just go down to verse 16. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. And we'll arrive at this point maybe in a, uh, another week or two. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. So this is what Paul is saying. I, I don't, I don't believe there's anything that I'm doing anything wrong as far as God's ministry. Third, Paul says that just because he's not aware of any failings, it does not validate his ministry. It doesn't um, justify it. He says. That not being aware of failures does not mean that he is innocent of any deficiencies or flaws. Paul's humility, I believe, is on display here. He says that he's not innocent of any flaws. But this isn't his point. His point isn't that he's perfect. For Paul says that if he has problems, he has a superior who evaluates him. And that is the Lord. So if he has problems, if he has flaws, 
he has a a superior who is going to judge him. So five. This is this is difficult to learn. We should not be so self-critical that we find ourselves discouraged. Yes, we will fall short of what is expected and even of what we are capable. So periodically, we will be discouraged. Um, we have goals. We have uh, hopefully desires for certain uh, ministries, um, certain achievements. And we have to be careful that we're not too self-critical here. We will fall short of what is expected and even of what we're capable. But we should continue to press onward. Stewing in failures or less than desired performance must be disregarded and continued to do, and we must continue to do our best for God. And that's what the Apostle Paul says in in uh, Philippians. In Philippians 3, in Philippians 3, speaking to the Philippians, a completely different congregation. Philippians 3. And I think this is a wonderful blend for what he's just said. That he doesn't, uh, uh, for I know nothing against myself. Notice in verse 13 in Philippians 3. Brethren, I do not count myself to have have apprehended, meaning to achieve, to attain. But one thing I do, on the one hand, forgetting those things which are behind. And on the other hand, reaching for those things which are ahead. Therefore, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so uh, being overly self-critical is destructive. It's not something we should do. If we sin, we confess it, we move on. And then verse 5. In verse 5, Paul puts the judgment of others or self into perspective. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. And you'll notice that uh, he said that uh, there's a day coming when there's going to be a judgment. And there are judgments in man's day or man's time. But he says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one, then each one's praise will come from God. And I think to understand this verse uh, clearly, we almost need to start with that last phrase. Then each one's praise will come from God. First of all, Paul's guidance is to, is to stop judging others before the right time. Judge nothing before the time. By the way, it's another imperative. It means to stop judging before the time arrives. And this takes us back to the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, the judging that Paul is describing is not that of training or providing constructive criticism, such as parents teaching children. 
Paul's subject is destructive criticism. Criticism that comes from the sin nature. This criticism is based on, very often, self-promotion, inordinate competition, which leads to harmful rivalry, then resentment, and often personal assassination. So we have to be careful that we aren't involved in destructive criticism. Paul was the focus of that type of criticism. And he says, don't judge anyone before the time, the right time, the appropriate time. And who is the judge? The Lord Jesus Christ. So point three Paul says that when the Lord returns at the rapture, then we will be judged. Paul is addressing believers. Therefore, this is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. This is not great white throne judgment. This isn't for unbelievers. This is believers. We will be judged someday. And that will occur when the Lord returns at the rapture. For... Paul says at the judgment seat of Christ, our secrets will be brought to light, or we could say they're exposed. Now, this is a a, a problematic passage for some because they believe that what this is teaching is that when we arrive at the judgment seat of Christ, All of our sins, all of our failings, all are going to be exposed to everybody. And we've been trying to hide them all our lives. If that's true, then how do we finish this sentence or this uh, verse with, then each one's praise will come from God. So we have hidden things of darkness. It could be understood as the immoral or sinful uh, intentions. But it could also simply be a reference to what is in our souls, what we have in our souls. And the counsel of the heart can refer to our motives or intentions. Maybe selfish desires. But again, it can refer to what is internal to our souls. This does not necessarily refer to mental attitude sins. So all of our mental attitude sins, which we've been harboring in our souls, are going to be exposed. I don't, I don't think that's what he's teaching. Paul is saying that he can be judged by man, but someday the truth will be revealed by the Lord. So there very well may, may be human courts. He can have... Uh, his day in man's court. Or he can uh, be criticized by others for what he does. But he's saying, and therefore they're attributing to him evil motives and intentions. But I think what Paul is saying here is there's going to be a day when the motives that I am using are going to be, uh, be known at the judgment seat of Christ. So the point five, what supports the more positive interpretation is the last sentence. 
the praise that will come from God. Remember, Paul is speaking to those in God's service, and he concludes this subject on a positive note. Praise from God. He's speaking. He mentions himself. Uh, he mentions Apollos. He mentions Cephas. And there are many others, whether it's Silas or whether it's uh, Timothy, who are ministering, who have godly intentions. Someday, even though they're being criticized now, those motives will be revealed. God will provide praise for those who serve in this way. Okay, in summary here, the Corinthian church has problems with internal factions and conflicts. One of the reasons is because they have their eyes on people instead of on God and God's message. Paul continues to correct the church in their attitudes and their actions. Paul uses himself to illustrate corrective, uh, correct attitude and devotion. He is a servant. He is a, a steward of God. And so being his subject to God's evaluation, therefore he is subject to God's evaluation, not to humans. The application. We should be loyal servants and stewards like the Apostle Paul or like Apollos or by Peter or by Titus or by Timothy. These all worked in these ministries. We should be stewards like Paul and should not be apprehensive of public criticism, nor should we be seeking the praise of mankind. But we should be looking forward to the praise that will come from God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Paul's message here. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he had an extraordinary message. But he says, it's not my message. It's not something that should be uh, attributed to me and therefore me being honored for it because I am a servant. I am a steward of his Lord. And Father, we pray that we would have that same attitude. We pray that at the judgment seat of Christ, we will look forward to the praise that is given to us by God for our service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.